Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of Bluefish Red State. Uh, my name is Adam Troxtel, and I'm not going to talk about myself a lot on this podcast. I'm just going to leave it to these first few lines just so you know who I am, because this is not about me. Um, and I'll tell you what it's about in a minute, but just so you know who you're hearing from, uh, I am a former journalist. I have been in Oklahoma for almost a decade now. Uh, I grew up in the South, and I currently work in a communications job. It has nothing to do with this podcast. The two do not meet. They don't intercept, and I want to keep it that way. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll tell you about me is that I'm a progressive. I consider myself to be a progressive. I vote Democrat. Um, I believe in those ideals. I believe in the liberal ideals. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm always open to making the changes that I think Democrats want to make in this country. And that can be kind of odd in Oklahoma. Um, the state is very dominated by conservative Christian Republicans. Uh, often we make the news because of how dominated we are by conservative Christian Republicans. Um, and so being a progressive in this state, I always feel like it's, it's sort of like you're, you're swimming against a tide or you're a fish out of water. You know, you just, you kind of feel like everything's working against you. And despite this feeling, though, there are so many people out there who continue to work for the progressive cause here in Oklahoma. I'm sure it's that way across many, many, many states that are like Oklahoma. But um, it certainly is true here. Those of us who are on the ground here know that it's true. We see these people. And so I want to use this podcast to really share that message and to share those people's efforts and to show that this isn't as deep a red estate as you think it is. And we're going to start doing that immediately with this first podcast. Uh, but before I, we really launch into it, I want to take us back to do a little bit of a history lesson. Because obviously it's, it wasn't always that Oklahoma was such a deep red state on the electoral college maps. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been able to check out the website 270 to win. It's one of my favorite websites. Um, but they've got a, a, a little a part of their website where you can go back and look historically at uh, presidential elections. And if you go back and you look at uh, how the way Oklahoma has voted since statehood, it's kind of an interesting mix. So the first presidential election that uh, people voted in in the state as certified Oklahomans was in 1908. Uh, that was the election won by William Howard Taft. However, Oklahomans voted in favor of William Jennings Bryan, uh, the Democrat in that race who got defeated. Uh, Taft was the Republican. He was handpicked by Teddy Roosevelt, who said after he won his first election, I'm not going to run again, and regretted that decision for the rest of his political life. Um, oddly enough, uh, if you'll maybe recall, the current congressman for House District 2 in Oklahoma, Mark Wayne Mullins, also made a similar uh, statement when he won, he said he would only serve three terms and go six years. And then conveniently in 2017, he said, ah, you know what? Uh, was not a very good promise that I made to myself. Uh, I'm going to run again. And let's just forget I ever made that promise. We didn't forget. 
anyways. Um, but so that was the first uh, election in Oklahoma was 1908 was William Howard Taft. And from 1908 until 1964, Oklahomans voted in favor of the Democrat in the presidential race 10 times to 5. So those 15 elections um, altogether, 10 times they voted for the Democrat. Five times they voted for uh, for the Republican, including in 1960 when they voted for Richard Nixon. Interesting choice. Also in 1952 when they voted for uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And in 1928 when they voted for Hoover. Uh but I digress. But after 1964, Oklahoma has exclusively voted for the Republican in the presidential race, which, of course, 1964 would have been when Lyndon Johnson uh, passed the Civil Rights Act and then later passed the Voting Rights Act. So since then, Oklahoma has gone Republican. And it's even sort of seeped its way down into our congressional picks. Uh, for instance, um, uh, the last Democrat that held a congressional seat in Oklahoma was Dan Boren in 2013. Well, he was the last until the next person we're next going to talk about. But I, I, I want to step back there and kind of explain, you know, there was sort of this leftover of the old Democrat ideology in Oklahoma, right? These were sort of Democrats in the older tradition. Um, many of them were still pretty conservative socially. And up until within the last 10 years, there actually were more registered Democrats in Oklahoma than Republicans. That changed recently, but it just kind of shows you that these this wasn't Democrats in the modern sense, right? The Democratic Party in the modern sense was essentially dead in Oklahoma, right? It, it really didn't exist outside of these small pockets in these communities. But then something very, very big happened in 2018. In House District 5, Kendra Horn became the first Democrat to be elected to that congressional seat since 1975. Uh, it had been Republicans up until then. In fact, the last Democrat to have held that seat was a man by the name of John Jarman. And he actually switched party affiliations after his election in 1974. He said, enough with these new Democrats and their liberal ways. I'm going to be a Republican. And then he retired. And since then, it was held by uh, Republicans. Um, following Mr. Jarman, it was uh, Mickey Edwards. He lost his renomination to a man by the name of Ernest Istook. And I'm sorry if I mispronounced that name. But he retired to run for governor of Oklahoma which he lost. He was then replaced by Mary Fallon. She also retired from that seat to run for governor of Oklahoma and won. She was then replaced by James Lankford, a Republican, who retired to run for U.S. Senate and won. And he was then replaced by a man by the name of Steve Russell, 
who held the seat from 2015 until 2019. And in 2018, in the midterms, he was defeated by Kendra Horn, who currently holds the seat. Now, remember 2018? Remember the, the midterm elections in 2018? It was kind of a crazy time, right? Uh, you know, everybody was busy watching to see if Senator Ted Cruz would lose his seat to Beto. He, of course, didn't uh, by very narrow margins. But the Democrats retook the House. It was a big deal. How was Trump going to deal with this kind of thing? What does this mean for the 2020 election? All those questions were, were being asked. And I feel like Kendra Horn's story was kind of overlooked because I don't think anybody was was looking at it. I don't think anybody expected that this would happen. And Oklahoma City carried her to that seat. But it's not like this was a new thing nationally, right? Like major metropolitan areas didn't just start voting Democrat in 2018. They'd been doing it for years and years and years. Just not in Oklahoma. Till now. So why? What what changed? What what happened in that race? And and what's happening in Oklahoma's politics right now that might lead to someone like Kendra Horn being elected to office and being the favorite against Stephanie Bice, at least for the moment. Well, maybe we can get some perspective on that with our first uh, big interview segment ever. These shows are going to be divided up into segments. Um, obviously, we'll have the introduction, which is something I just gave, and then we'll go into a big interview. Somebody's going to talk about the big topic. And this big topic is just sort of about where Oklahoma is and where it's going. Um, and I feel very fortunate to have for episode one, Mr. Joshua Harris Till. Joshua is a member of the Oklahoma Democrats. He is a member of the Oklahoma Young Democrats. He is a member of the statewide Black Lives Matter organization. And he just so happens to now be the president of the Young Democrats of America. That's the national organization. It's, it's pretty neat to think that this, the president of the Young Democrats of America comes from Oklahoma. It's not a sentence I think you would expect to hear, but uh, he worked his tail off to get there, and it's an absolute pleasure for me to welcome to the show our first guest ever, Joshua Harris-Till. Thank you for joining us, Josh. Never no problem. Glad to be here. Um, now, we're kind of coming off, uh, just a full disclosure, this was uh, an interview that was a long time in the making because Josh has been pretty busy lately um <laughs> in fact last week i have to tell you last week when i when i asked you um about interviewing last week i immediately thought oh god that's the convention he is not going to have any time on his <laughs> hands whatsoever that was a terrible mistake um but how was it you were there at the convention or quote unquote there because uh, it was a virtual one what was that experience like i know you've been to some before what was this one like you know, um, you lose a little bit of it in terms of like there's something about being in the atmosphere, right? The difference between watching a concert on TV and being at a concert is the kind of the same when you have convention versus a virtual one. But I think what I love about it 
is the fact that it was so open and accessible to so many people that you really got to kind of share that opportunity and share that environment with everybody. And so that was really great for me. I think, I think the trade-off and me not getting kind of that euphoric feeling with us having that accessibility to all is something that I can, you know, I, I really love. Having watched from home, I mean, given the circumstances, I think they kind of, they knocked it out of the park, especially the, the roll call where you, where you went around to everybody in the state and, you know, for, for Oklahoma to have the moment where we saw um, Alicia Andrews there in the, the Greenwood district um, there in Tulsa, it was, it was so special. So, uh, so that's, that's really neat. Um, Was, I mean, is just kind of coming off fresh of it. Is there anything that, that you, you know, personally saw from any meetings or any discussions that you had that, you know, what, what did you take away from that convention? Was there anything new or, or anything that, that maybe made you optimistic or, or, or gave you any sort of insight into how these next few months are going to go? Um, I think that, you know, I guess in a, in a, <laughs> people wouldn't necessarily look at this as a bright spot, but what I really appreciated is kind of how they took the gloves off for a number of those speeches and really attacked Trump. You know, we, we had had uh, Michelle Obama, uh, and all of her glory letting us know when they go low, we go high. But there was a lot of points in the convention where they held them accountable. You know, uh, the, the young woman who talked about her father uh, passing a coronavirus, um, Mitt Romney uh, and, his, and his segment on it and the piece of the soldiers talking about how they don't trust uh, Trump as president. That is the kind of stuff that I think we need to be very honest about. And we need to quit trying to pretend like, you know, we just need a different president. No, we need a better president. And we need somebody who can fix all of the mistakes that Trump has made over the years. And so that was kind of the part for me that was like, okay, I'm glad we're taking this seriously. So I want to jump into sort of your campaign and your effort to become the president of Young Democrats of America. Um, Because, yeah, I Again, I just I think it's it's impressive, um, but perhaps shocking to some that the the president of YDA would come from Oklahoma. I mean, it is a very deep red state. We've got very Republican background here, and but that doesn't. I, I think your presidency shows that that doesn't necessarily snuff out, um, you know, the the Democratic movement here. So, um, what made you decide to to run, and? be honest did, did you think that that was something that 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 you could do obviously it is but when you started out you know was this was did you have a moment where oh man what did i get myself into <laughs> um it's crazy so 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 two one huge thing is i'm actually not the first president from oklahoma uh 20 years ago exactly um from my election we elected uh another guy named jay Parker from Oklahoma. Now he had lived in a bunch of different places oh, yeah. and, and he's worked a lot in, in politics, but he was the first one to, to be YDA president from Oklahoma. And so that's a uh, shout out to him uh, for, for, for putting Oklahoma on the map way back in the day. Um, the organization obviously has changed a lot since the uh, early nineties. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I think that for me, it was it was actually not even really about me wanting to be the president. It was a lot of people 
telling me that I should run and saying that they believed that I was the best fit person for um, to be the next president of this organization. With everything that's happening in the country, uh, especially around the racial issues, social justice issues, um, me being uh, on the front lines, me doing the advocacy work, me having the political background and experience, it was just kind of um, a perfect fit. And people kept telling me that, and I kept <laughs> telling them no. Uh, I had zero desire to run, but overall they ended up convincing me. And I mean, from the second I announced, I I felt, you know, like I would be the next president of this organization. The amount of support was just tremendous. And so um, kind of was just running to see, uh, using the campaign to see how well I could connect with people. And it's kind of a crazy campaign. You know, you travel all across the, the country, right? I think I went to about 14 or 15 states myself and my uh, running mates. I ran with a full slate, uh, six other officers, and they went to states as well. But, you know, we used that time to connect with the state chapters, connect with their leadership, find out what was going on with them, what, what their interests were, and, and use that as an opportunity to you know, grow the organization in, in a more positive way. And so it was, it was amazing. And I really didn't have an opponent for, I'd say about 80% of my race. Somebody jumped in at the last minute. Um, you know, I mean, I, I well, that's nice. That's, that's one of those <laughs> things. It's really good. Here's the thing about having an opponent. It's easier to fundraise when you, when you have a boogeyman. So we appreciate him showing up when he did so that I could, uh, so I could do some more fundraising. Um, but it was good, you know, and obviously it, it was a blowout in terms of the actual election. I had been campaigning for a very long time. People trusted me and I had one over their support. And so it was good. It was a, it was a, it was a really easy race, but I don't yeah. I don't use that to kind of you know take it lightly. Sure, sure. Uh, there's a fantastic piece in Nondoc online that I would encourage everybody to go look up because it really talks about that race and and not just you know how impressive it was, but also what it took from you because it <laughs> it seemed like it was you. I mean, you just you worked so hard for that. Um, and 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 made it a possibility. Well, sacrifice, sacrificed the whole car for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Was driving down to Texas for their convention and and ended up getting thrown off the road by some bad weather and and that was you know obviously not advantageous, but you know the sacrifice. It's typical. <laughs> sacrifice. Typical for Oklahomans. Exactly. <laughs> but of course, that wasn't your first. Um, uh, foray into uh, politics in the Democratic Party. You're very involved here in Oklahoma, especially with young Democrats here in Oklahoma. And it's that perspective I really want to tap into for this interview because I think you have a unique position that you can see what's happening here in the state. Um, obviously, um, with the election of Kendra Horn, a Democrat for, uh, or, uh, who's now representing House District 5, um, uh, Super impressive and a little bit surprising to some people, um, and I guess that would be the first way I would put that is is as someone who's involved in the Democratic Party, was her election a surprise to you? Should we have been surprised by that, or is there something that people aren't seeing in Oklahoma? Um, 
I think that it's less about being a surprise and more about doing the work. And, and I tell people this all the time. If you're willing to give not just 100%, right, but like 150%, right, to, to the campaign, and if you're actually willing to sit down and do the hours and hours and hours of call time, and if you're actually willing to go around and ask people for their vote and admit what you don't know and like, you know, campaign in the, in the truest sense of the word, then elections are winnable. And I think that we have seen so few people do that for so long that uh, Steve Russell just didn't take her seriously. He was like, you know, yeah, I got an opponent, but you know, who cares? I'm going to keep doing what I've always done. And it's always worked, and this Democrat's not going to win. And he ran no campaign. He didn't try. And the reality is it was still close. It was a nail-biter, but she did the work, and she won. And so that's what happens when you're willing to do the work, uh, when Republicans uh, take for granted how how hard they have to work to keep their seats and how to, you know, some people are going to really question whether or not they're representing them, then these kind of things can happen. And so I was, you know, happy to see it, but less so surprised because I saw how hard she was working. There are polls right now that show that there's a very good chance that for the first time in several, several years that Oklahoma County could vote blue in the presidential election. Now, obviously, the rest of the state um, will be very likely decidedly red. Um, But the point is that Oklahoma County could go blue. That would be momentous. Um, and it kind of goes along with this trend that we see of these cities, you know, voting blue even in, in such red states. But, you know, from from your perspective, and, and again, you know, just, just being at the forefront, I think, of, of the young Democratic uh, movement and being so involved with the Democratic Party here in Oklahoma, um, how does that happen? <laughs> like, like, what have you seen, or or what what do you think is is happening that might lead to that? Is it just that you know we're the demographics are changing, or maybe that the Democratic Party is is doing some fantastic work that we need to highlight? Um, well, so the first part of it is Trump is trash, right? Like, right. <laughs> okay. You've, yes. you've never had uh, a candidate this trash before, and. Before, people were like, let's give him a shot and see what he does. He's an outsider. But now everybody knows that was a horrible idea. We should have never done it. And so that's the first component of it. The second component of it is uh, you have a lot of really great Democrats who are working their butts off. Uh, Alicia Andrews, I mean, absolutely phenomenal. She is everywhere. And she's got this Facebook Live thing she's doing now. She's constantly getting information, giving that information back out. The coordinated campaign, she's set that up. It's firing on all cylinders. Uh, Governor Walters is now the uh, DNC man for the party. So somebody who's kind of been out of politics is back in the fray. Kaylin Free, who uh, was a former district attorney and actually ran for Congress out in the second district. She's the DNC woman. I'm here. And all of us have a singular goal of making sure that Democrats are elect, are engaged and, and voting and, and excited about the process. And so that is the reason that you're going to see Oklahoma County switch is because 
we are 100% putting in all of our efforts because not only do we know that it's important for us to send a very clear message to Donald Trump that Oklahoma isn't as safe for him as, as he thought it was. So safe, in fact, like he's been back once since he got elected. Yeah. And his base, you know, here, obviously some of the some of the strongest supporters of his and he didn't show appreciation to him. And we're going to point that out and we're going to let people know, hey, if he's not even willing to show up uh, to a state that he's supposed to be very friendly in. And when he does show up, he does so in the middle of a pandemic that starts a super spreader across the state like. Even his constituents, I think, was looking at that uh, Tulsa event like, no, we're not. We're not going to do that. And so the reality is hopefully we keep that as we move towards the uh, general, um, keep that energy, keep that enthusiasm. But we know that Democrats are excited. They're fired up. They've, they've struggled. They've uh, lost so much. And they're, they're not sitting idly by and waiting on something to happen. They're going after it. And I think that's why you're going to see Oklahoma County switch. Not to mention uh, Kendra Horn, you know, uh, we have to keep her in office. She's she's the only congressional uh, representation we have, and she is the number one target of the GOP. And so when you come for ours, you know, we got to defend them. So that's another huge component of it, probably even bigger than the presidential side is, you know, we're not going to let outside forces come into Oklahoma and think that they're going to control our politics. We're going to we're going to do something. Uh, I want to switch back to, to um, some national questions, questions that apply more to young Democrats of America. Um, you know, we always hear the old adage, young people don't vote, right? That, that's what everybody says. Um, and the movements that we're seeing right now are very young. They're led by young people. Um, you know, your organization, once again, led by young people. So you know the momentum that we're seeing like I said, it's coming from the youth, but then it's like everybody says, young people don't vote. Why should we think that that's going to be different now? So, you know, here's the thing about the the young people don't vote. Uh, if you ask young people why they don't vote, they say, my vote doesn't matter, right? Right. That is a learned response, right? Somebody has yeah. told them over and over and over again until they've been indoctrinated to believe that their vote doesn't count. So we have to first uh, accept responsibility for allowing people to manipulate them, right, into thinking that their vote doesn't count. And second, we have to ask them to be involved. I tell, I literally preach across this country the same message every time someone asks me, how do I get young people involved? And I say, did you invite them? And, and they're like, wait, what? And I'm like, did you invite young people to this meeting? If you're not inviting them to the table, you can't be surprised when they don't take a seat. Um, if you're not asking them for their vote, then you can't be surprised when they don't show up to vote for you. And if you're not talking to young people about their issues, then you are actually campaigning to young people to try to turn out their votes. So many politicians talk about young issues or what they think are young issues with other older people and the framing that uh, is, is good for other older people, but they're not actually talking to young people about the things that we care about. 
And so that is the number one reason young people don't turn out to vote. They aren't asked, they aren't spoken to, and they aren't talked with about their issues. And so these campaigns are missing the bark. They're talking at young people instead of to them. And, and I say that repeatedly. And, and every single time I do, the person I'm telling acts like it's this huge surprise. Like I, I gave them this golden ticket that they didn't know about. And I'm like, that's how you do it. And for the ones who do invite young people and young people don't show up, um, one, you offer food because, you know, <laughs> all, all young people are hungry. Let me tell you, uh, that's how you get me to 90% of the places I go. Um, Same. But then, two, like when they come to the meeting, do they get to do they have a voice? Do they get to speak about the things they care about? Do they get to actually be involved in the conversation? Do they get to have their ideas heard, you know, and and, and, and enacted? Or is it just you coming in and trying to teach them about politics like they don't know anything about politics? And so that's that's, you know, the big things. It's make an atmosphere where young people want to be and they'll be there. Uh, But but 90% of the time, that's not the case. I'm glad uh, you brought up issues. Fantastic points, by the way. But I'm glad you brought up issues. It's a perfect segue into my next question about um, sort of young people in the Democratic Party and, and, you know, what we could see from an upcoming movement is I think a lot of those issues um, for younger voters tend to be within the Democratic Party. They tend to be more to the left, you know, Medicare for all, um, you know, uh, currently defunding the police, uh, something that's really come out of out of uh, the left side of the Democratic Party. Um, and on the flip side of that, you've got the nomination of Joe Biden uh, and then Kamala Harris, which, you know, fantastic ticket. But I think there are some people, some younger people, especially on that left side, maybe they were bigger, big supporters of Bernie. They love AOC, um, who maybe feel like that wasn't the choice for them. And I don't know, as you mentioned with uh, with President Trump, who's currently in office and, and sort of the opposite of them, I don't know if it may, I don't know how much is going to matter right now, but is this sort of seeming divide between this generational gap maybe between some of the older Democrats and some of the younger Democrats, you know, is that something that the Democratic Party needs to be concerned about? and maybe start to take some action to try and bridge? Um, so there's two different parts of this, right? Uh, I sure. think that uh, there are, and, and here's the thing, uh, I actually had an argument with some friends because I'm not as left as they are, right? Sure. Uh, I don't know that I'm the person to speak on behalf of progressives, but I will say that uh, as a progressive, as a person who identifies as progressive, sure, there is an amount of education that comes with uh, advocacy, right? And we hate incremental change because these are things that should have happened 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago, but they haven't happened, right? And so we need to approach this from a realistic standpoint because in Oklahoma, right, there's a Republican supermajority. So trying to get, you know, AOC type policies, Medicare for all, uh, environmental justice, defunding the police passed is just a non-starter, 
right? Right, um, right. If you're in a, a heavily democratic state, then you can push for those things and you can see those things passed. If you're in a state where people actually want to pay taxes because they understand that taxes are how we pay for improvements in our community, then you can get some things done. But if you're not in those states, then the reason that the moderates take the approach that they take is because that's the only way they can truly get some of that change. And so I don't think that it's necessarily a rift in the party. Uh, the Democratic Party has a lot of moderates in it, and it has a lot of progressives in it. And the progressives should push the moderates to be more progressive because we're within the party structure, right? This is all Democrats. So this would be the same if we had a Democratic supermajority state. That's, that's what they're supposed to do. We are supposed to have disagreements on ideals uh, and, and how progressive that we can be. And so I 100% accept it. Now, what I would say to the progressives is like, we can't kill off the moderates uh, and think that everything is gonna be okay because some of these progressive policies need to have a more moderate approach to their implementation or we will destroy uh, different parts of the country. When you, th when you think about um, a single payer system, right? And the elimination sure. of all uh, insurance companies. Like we, we think of it as great because, you know, single payer is better. Insurance companies are justifiable scams. <laughs> um, but what we forget is the insurance companies employ a lot of people, right? Right. Where are those people going to go? Who's going to take care of them when their entire industry disappears? Right. We're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of folks who would be jobless if we got rid of the insurance industry tomorrow. Right. But if we do a phased yeah. approach, then these people can start finding new opportunities. Uh, these companies can start transitioning uh, what they do to working on different things to making sure that some of these jobs can stay like that's the kind of approach that needs to be taken in order to make sure that we're actually looking at the bigger people. We can't picture we can't say that we care about people and then put them in situations that might you know ruin their entire lives and i think that you know we sometimes don't think about that when we think about these super progressive moves when we think about defunding the police um i think that it's great i think we need to reallocate those funds but i think that we also need to be very serious and intentional on researching where we can make those cuts right Right. If we take 25% of the budget off the top and we haven't put in place uh, the infrastructure on how they should divvy up that money, then the programs that these police stations are going to cut are not going to be, you know, more officers or military equipment. They're going to cut those uh, community policing projects that they spend money on because that's, their, that's what they don't deem as essential. And so we have to take a more moderate approach. We have to identify where the issues are. We have to identify what we want these cuts to look like and what we want this prog progressive changes to actually be so that they can be effective and, and not detrimental because all they want is for one of these programs to fail so that the Republicans have marching orders for the rest of forever, just like they do with the gun argument. One place where there's no guns gets shot up and and they never and they never let you hear the end of it.
but in a place where there are lots of guns, like San Bernardino shooting, or um, or the fact that you know in in Ohio there was a less than one minute response rate, and still thirty people got killed. You know, so that's as as close to having guns on the scene as you can you know possibly imagine, with a thirty right. seconds response rate, and there's still thirty you know thirty plus people uh, were killed. And so that's the kind of things that we have to think about. They're going to try to use these against us. How do we, uh, how are we smart about our implementation so that it doesn't fail? Um, I, one last question. This has been a, a, a great interview. Um, and when, with that uh, issue of defunding the police, which has come out of um, some unfortunate incidents lately. We just had another one um, in Wisconsin just a few days ago. Um, another black man shot by a policeman. And um, I, I feel like it would be a missed opportunity if I didn't ask you, a, a black man in Oklahoma, about this. Um, you know, the the Black Lives Matter movement, which has been going for a while now and probably deserved more credit before than it is getting now, but I feel like there's... I sense some momentum there, you know, especially... Um, with the killing of George Floyd, which, again, unfortunate that, that it required that. It, sh- it shouldn't have. Um, but, you know, where do you see... Are, are you encouraged by um, the uh, increase in... Uh, I don't want to say notoriety. Everybody kind of knew them. I guess increase, seeming increase in support and, and sympathy for the Black Lives Matter movement and where it's going to take us as a country and where it's going to take Oklahoma... Uh, as a state. Uh, I know BLM OKC is doing a lot of great things. Uh, up in Tulsa, they've been doing a lot of good things. So w- where do you see that, and, and is it encouraging for you? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. I, um, I'm one of the state leaders uh, for BLM uh, OKC. Yeah. And, you know, I was on the front lines uh, for, for 99% of, of, you know, everything that was going on. And I'm on the task force uh, that came out of the meeting that we demanded with the mayor to actually do this reform. And I am optimistic about the potential for change. But here's the thing uh, that anybody who's serious about this work will tell you, we have zero desire to, to be marching or to be in these task force meetings or to be demanding you know justice and change this is exhausting work and and my heart is broken more often than it isn't because of the things that i see um not just with the shootings right but at the protests right when you see the pain of a community um and then the response of like just uh racist like you know horrible folks who who shoot that who shoot them down and and they say these negative things I've, i i run the black lives matter okc page if you could see the messages that we get on this page uh people just boldly saying some of the most hateful things that you could ever think about like it's it's heartbreaking i i just want to live in a world where Black men and women and, and, and black and brown folks don't have to fear for their life at every every single time they see an officer. And that's what I think people don't really understand is they think 
you know, in these situations where there's an interaction with the police. If you're ever riding in a car with a black person and there's an officer that goes by, you'll see their body physically tense up. You'll see the atmosphere sucked out of the vehicle. You'll see their conversations completely stop. And it's because they they don't want to get pulled. It doesn't matter if they're not doing anything. It doesn't matter if they're going to speed limit. It doesn't matter if all their papers are correct. It doesn't matter if they're the friendliest person. I, I work in politics. I'm usually in a suit. And I've been pulled over and still just feared for my life. And, and, and felt an even more extreme fear when I wasn't dressed up, right? I was once in like some sweatpants and, and a tank top. And I was like, crap, you know, I'm, I'm 6'2", I'm almost 300 pounds. I don't want this officer to feel threatened. And it's like, not, not because I'm doing anything, not because I plan on saying anything, not because I inherently hate police, but just because I'm a black man and I'm very large and, and, and they fear for their lives because they're indoctrinated to believe that black and brown people don't like police and that the interaction is going to be negative. And so like, that's just what I want to get rid of. You know, I just want us to, to not be traumatized as a community. Um, and I want the officers to not be afraid of us. I want them to come into the situation thinking everything's going to be normal, being friendly. I want the person they meet to say, hey, I'm really sorry I was speeding. I won't do it again. I 100% accept my ticket. And like that to be all of the interactions. And, and, and the unfortunate reality is more often than not, it's not. And what you saw with Jacob seven times is not me trying to warn you is not me trying to detain you is not me trying to subdue you seven times is me trying to kill you and the fact that this man is alive today i personally believe is only because he didn't want his children to let that be the last time they saw him it's a lot of work that we have to do as a country it's a lot of work that we have to do as a state but i think that we're working on it together, and and I'm excited about uh, seeing, you know, potentially one day a, a much much better system. I cannot imagine. I can't even begin to imagine. But this is why we ask these questions to get this feedback because we need to hear that voice. So thank you so much for sharing that with me. And um, Joshua Harris still, Black Lives Matter, Oklahoma, Young Democrats of America, Oklahoma Democratic Party wears a lot of hats. He does it well. And uh, a fantastic first guest for Bluefish. I really, really uh, appreciate it. Um, real quick, you know, if you want, I just tell us about, you know, kind of uh, what does your work consist of mostly right now? It's after the convention. We're heading toward uh, the election in November. So what, what, is, what is the most of your work right now? Uh, you know, most of my work is actually in state. I'm the uh, finance director for the Oklahoma Democratic Party's coordinated campaign. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so I took that on. You know, the job is to do fundraising. We want to try to provide some some funding for these you know down ballot races that more often than not get forgotten about. Uh, outside of that, yeah, YDA, um, our partnership with the Biden campaign firing on all cylinders we just uh set up a partnership with women's march uh usa where we're going to be doing some uh some co-branding on some targeted uh efforts in, in battleground states and i think i took about seven or eight phone calls about that yesterday alone <laughs> just like 
they're not short phone calls either. <laughs> Which is interesting because yesterday I'm like, yesterday was so jam packed because sure. I'm working on that. At the same time, I'm in Stillwater. They did a, a BLM That's right. march to try to get their school to be held accountable. Then we leave Stillwater and go to Tulsa. Greg Robinson is running for mayor. So I'm there like dropping lit for him. Uh, had a chance to speak with him for a bit. You know, we're just running around. Like everything is so busy right now. As you said, I'm in my car. Uh, I have to meet the the march on Washington is happening in a couple of days. And we're planning on going out there for that. Uh, so it's just it's we're everywhere doing everything. There's there's tons and tons of work to do. We got to get Democrats elected. Uh, we got to uh, defeat white supremacy and, and social injustice, and, and, and we got to save uh, the planet. <laughs> At the same time, try to find time to sleep and eat. I haven't <laughs> ate today, so I'm actually oh parked God. outside of a place. I think I'm going to grab a bite to eat before I go to my next meeting. Yes, please. Please do. Do not let me keep you anymore. I cannot imagine going this far today without eating. Um, thank you so much, Joshua. Absolute pleasure. Um, we'll include there lots of links that um, that uh, to stuff that Josh is involved with, whether it's uh, BLM or, or, or uh, Young Democrats of America, Young Democrats in Oklahoma, all that. We're going to include all of that um, in the podcast. So thanks again. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. I look forward to to tuning into the show in the future. This next uh, segment here on Bluefish is going to be called News of the Week. Now, obviously, as a weekly podcast, uh, it's kind of hard to do some pretty quick news. And so what I want to do every week is pick out a few stories that I think are important and certainly uh, important as we go ahead. Um, They deal with progressive issues, they deal with important issues, um, just kind of some things to look out for, things to watch, things we'll follow, and probably some things that will come up on on future episodes. So we'll get started. I mind the absolute best of Oklahoma media to uh, find these stories for you, and of course we're going to give credit where credit is due, uh, wherever we can. Um, And the the first story, uh, the federal government has informed Oklahoma and several other states that it will cease its additional funding for unemployment benefits due to the pandemic. If you remember, this is the uh, the executive order that was signed by President Donald Trump, which used FEMA funds to provide the extra unemployment benefits for job losses during the pandemic. Um, Dylan Richards from uh, KOCO Channel 5, he's got a great Twitter thread on this. You can follow him at KOCO Dylan. That's at KOCO D-I-L-L-O-N. He's a good follow. Um, basically, FEMA and the Department of Labor informed states on Wednesday at September the 9th that the program would be capped at six weeks. Uh, Oklahomans will receive the extra funding in a lump sum that will not exceed $1,800, and uh, that's it. So definitely some urgent action that is still needed there, certainly a sign things are not getting any easier for uh, people who are unemployed during this pandemic. And uh, if you haven't heard... Uh, incumbent Democrat Kendra Horn will face Republican challenger and state Senator Stephanie Bice in the race for Congressional District 5, and that includes Oklahoma City. Uh, Bice defeated the gun-toting, Trump-loving Terry Neese in a knockdown, dragout primary runoff last month. Maybe you saw some, some of the attack ads for that one. Uh, according to reporting from The Frontier, 
another good news resource here in, in Oklahoma. I'm going to include the link to this story in the show notes. Uh, but this is expected to be a very competitive race. Um, Bice campaigned as sort of the more moderate candidate compared to Nice, and she certainly seemed that way, but she still voiced her support for President Donald Trump um, and his policies. Uh, and a News 9 poll that actually came out on Thursday, September the 10th, shows that race in a dead heat. So Kendra Horn, Stephanie Bice in a dead heat. In fact, Bice might have a slight, slight lead, but it's certainly too close to call. Uh, we'll be keeping a close eye on that one. And speaking of polls, it was unfortunate news for Abby Broyles, who's the Democrat challenging longtime incumbent senator and climate change denier Jim Inhofe. Uh, a News on 6 and News 9 poll showed that the Republican is performing about the same as all of his previous races, uh, which he's won. Um, Inhofe, who has been in office since 1994 and will turn 86 this November, uh, holds about a 57 to 33% uh, lead with undecided voters set at about 6.4%, so not a whole lot. Um, and that is comparable with previous election results that he has had. Um, that's according to News 9's reporting. Uh, but just this week, Abby Broyles' campaign did release its first TV ad of the campaign. That's a sign that they are at least getting some decent fundraising in it, that campaign. Um, we'll see if we can't get Miss Broyles on the show sometime. I think that would be really, really beneficial. Um, I don't think this race is, is, is over by a long shot. I do think she's going to take uh, Jim Inhofe as close as anybody has, in, at least in the last few years, so, um, or last few races at least. So we'll see about that. Uh, but again, that's another, another one we're going to be watching. And that'll do it for news this week. Coming up, we'll wrap up the show. So normally in this um, portion of the show, um, I hope to have like a secondary topic, um, something to talk about that maybe relates to the the big interview, um, or it could be a different topic entirely. But sometimes I might save this for an editorial comment. If there's something that I feel like needs to be said and a point that needs to be made, uh, I want to make it. Because I, I do think that part of what this show, uh, this podcast can do is to encourage and to keep that hope in people who want to see change, um, whether that's through our guests or, or even through my thoughts and my opinion. Like I said, I don't want the show to be about me, but I do think there's a place for that sometimes. And, and this is going to be one of those times. This is something that I've been thinking about for a while. Um and I just I want to get it off my chest, and I, I want to point it out. So, um, a few weeks ago, we all got to see, uh, or got the opportunity to see, a pretty stunning report from the Brennan Center for Justice, um, and that's BrennanCenter.org. You can go there; it's the first thing that's on the website. Um, the Brennan Center describes itself as a nonpartisan law and policy institute, and the report that they issued a few weeks ago was called Hidden in Plain Sight. The report basically says that white supremacy and far-right militant influences have, to use their word, infiltrated law enforcement agencies uh, across the country. Uh, the report cites that the FBI has been aware of this trend and has issued some warnings 
over the years as they sort of watched this influence increase since about the year 2000. That's um, kind of the, the base that they use for, um, when they're looking at that increase. And there are a few things that I find just really fascinating about this report. Uh, for one thing, it shows that what we've been seeing in U.S. cities with the way that police have been reacting to protests and protesters this year is actually nothing new. Um, in fact, here, here's a fun part of that Brennan Center report, and it starts in Section 88 of the report, and it continues through um, Section 89, and and they're talking about the Portland Police Bureau um, and its history with, uh, you know, sort of sympathies to white nationalist far-right militants and, and what has been observable and recordable. Um, and the, the part that interests me starts like this, quote, This history became relevant because the Portland Police Bureau was again accused of bias in its response to a series of violent rallies instigated by far-right militants and white supremacist groups from 2016 through 2019. So this is even before 2020. We're, no, we're not even in 2020 at this point. Uh, it continues. Portland Police and Department of Homeland Security agents appeared inappropriately sympathetic to violent members of the far-right groups while conducting mass arrests and indiscriminately using less lethal munitions against anti-racist and anti-fascist counter-protesters. DHS officers were captured on video soliciting the assistance of militia members to arrest anti-racist protesters. Do you remember in the Kenosha protests a few weeks ago about uh, over the shooting of, of, of Jacob Blake when we see videos of police officers thanking what are basically militiamen with rifles who really have no business being there? They walk up, they thank them, they shake their hands. You know, that's another point. Kyle Rittenhouse had no reason to be in that place where he killed two protesters and injured the third. Self-defense doesn't apply when you put yourself in that situation. Let's just stop that argument right there. So that's, that's the first thing that, that sort of interests me. Is this, is, this is nothing new. But there's, there's something else that you find in this report that I think really illustrates what is going on with our relationship with law enforcement agencies in this country. And it's, it's down in a part of the report called Justice Department Shirks Its Duty to Police Law Enforcement Misconduct. This part of the, the report notes that between 1995 and 2015, so we're, we're way before the Trump administration even on this, Quote, federal prosecutors declined to prosecute 96% of FBI civil rights investigations that involved police misconduct. More than 12,700 complaints were turned away. 96%. That is insanely high. And you go a little lower and, and you get to the meat, right? The, 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 the meaty part of this report, or the one thing that I think really stands out. Um... The report does call out the Trump administration for abandoning altogether the police reform efforts that were championed by 
President Barack Obama and his administration. First, it was Attorney General Jeff Sessions that was taking a crack at it, looking at civil rights statutes and laws and, 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 and precedent and all that. But then we get to Attorney General Bill Barr. And the report mentions this about what Bill Barr has said more recently regarding communities wanting change in their police. Here's what the report says. Barr has indicated similar disdain for law enforcement oversight, once threatening that communities that do not give support and respect to law enforcement, quote, might find themselves without the police protection they need. Think about what he's saying here. Think about those words. What does that sound like to you? Let me paraphrase. What Bill Barr has said here is that if these communities, these towns, these protesters, if they're serious about their displeasure at the behavior of their police force, whether in an isolated incident or over the years, if they are displeased about the behavior from this police force who is supposed to be there to protect them, then maybe they just shouldn't be protected. Maybe we'll just leave you to fend for yourself. Would you like that? To be left all alone with no one protecting you? You need me. You need us. Face it. That right there is the language of an abuser. That is what an abusive partner says to their victim. Maybe I should just leave. The American public, and, and really people of color in particular in America, are caught in a cycle of abuse with law enforcement agencies. Think about the attitude and the backlash from efforts to, to fund the police. Everyone who's against it talks about how much we need the police protection and how it's insane to take some of their money away. You, you, you can't send them away. You need them. They're there for you. These people who then turn around and, and abuse you. You need them. That's abuse. We have so much work to do in this country, and it, it's, it's not going to get any easier. Because the more that you see these calls and the closer you get to real reform in this area, the harder the pushback is going to be. But we have to continue it. For the sake of breaking this cycle, we have to. Keep working. Do not stop. Go vote. Go hold your leaders accountable on this issue. And that'll do it for uh, the first episode of, of Bluefish Red State. Uh, I really appreciate you sticking around for the whole episode. One thing I can promise you right now um, is that it's only going to get better. Uh, this is my, my first crack at this. It's not going to be the best at first, but I promise if you stick with me, I will get better. I will improve myself. I will improve the show, and, and we can grow together, and, and we can hopefully make a real difference. So thank you so much. Uh, hopefully we will see you next week. I've got some really fun things planned uh, for the next show. I've already kind of got it worked out, and if it works out, it could be a real humdinger. So uh, anyways, we'll see you next week. Goodbye.